we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hey! Hey everyone, Mel and Beck here. We just wanted to drop in and remind you to follow us on our social medias. So our Instagram and our Facebook are Rocky Mountain Red Handed, and our Twitter is RMRH Podcast. Yeah, so go and check out our social medias. We always post great pics that have to do with our uh, cases, case notes, anything that we find interesting, we share with you guys. Also, Mel, what's that email address? Our email is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Yeah, send us in your case recommendations. We want to know about local cases in your community and how they have affected your towns. So hit us up. Let us know of of the cases you want to hear in the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hi, Becky. How are you this afternoon? Hello, Melanie. How are you and all of our friends out there? Yes, it's so good to be here with you today. We're excited to share our story. We've got a crazy one today. Yes, we do. Crazy one. So, Melanie, what's up in your life? You know, my daughter and my husband actually are down in Tempe, Arizona. and my we love Arizona. Yes. My daughter is nine. And she got to meet her favorite author last night, and she was so excited. Who's her favorite author? Shannon Messenger, and she writes Keeper of the Lost Cities. I don't know if you've heard of it, but she was so, so excited and got a signed copy of her book. So she's reading that the whole drive back home today. And she got to meet her and everything. She got to meet her, so I got pictures of them together. So cute. Everyone needs to understand this, this little girl always has a book in her hand. Always. So you're raising her right. You know, she actually said to my husband, they had to wait a little bit at the end to meet the author. And she's sitting there and luckily she has her book to read. And she turns to my husband and she says, dad, it's such a coincidence when you have to wait for something and you have a good book to read. (laughs) She just wants to read everywhere she goes. So when she gets in trouble, do you ground her from reading? Um, I don't know if I want to admit that on the podcast, but yes, she gets her books taken away because it's the only it's thing like that matters that. to her. So because you could say you can't go outside, you can't play with friends, and she'd be like, "That's fine, I'll just go read." So mm-hmm. she does lose her books when she's in trouble. That's so cute. That's so cute. Well, she's she's a sweetheart. Happy birthday! So, well, should we get into it? Yes, we've let's got a do we've it. got a crazy story today to share with you guys. This is a story of three spiritual leaders and their disappearance slash murders could be connected or they could be completely random. So we're going to try to see if we can figure that out today. 
So on Saturday, July 21st, 1984, Father John Patrick Kerrigan, who was 58 years old, was scheduled to deliver his first sermon at Sacred Heart Parish in Ronan, Montana. Over 100 members were gathered together and excited to hear from their priest for their Catholic Church. They had heard of Father Kerrigan. He was actually transferring from Plains, Montana. Um, Ronan is located just 56 miles east of Plains, just across the Flathead Reservation. So Father Kerrigan was familiar with the area. In fact, this would be his 13th church since starting ministering in the mid-1950s. But they're all waiting for him, and he doesn't show up. Five minutes past from start time, doesn't show up. Ten minutes past start time, and you know that awkward moment when people start looking around, they're looking behind their shoulders, shifting their weight, sitting uncomfortably. After 15 minutes, some members just gathered their things and left, chalking the whole thing up as a miscommunication. Maybe Father Kerrigan won't start till next week, or maybe tomorrow. Maybe it was all just an error. Some congregation members were a little more concerned than others. Some called over to the rectory, which is the church-owned home that Father Kerrigan had just moved into. There was no answer. The phone just rang and rang. So, so at this time, we know he's been seen around town. He's, you know, hasn't officially had a sermon, but I would think that's pretty rare for the pastor or preacher to not show up for church. That seems like something that they, they would show up for. Yeah. So I, I understand why people were getting really nervous. So, but the next morning is the morning of his first morning mass and mass is a really big deal for Catholics, especially Sunday Mass. And Father Karen Kerrigan did not show up. No call, no show, nothing. Uh, The congregation really started to get nervous. Again, they banged on the door of the rectory with no one answering at that little red brick house. By Sunday evening, the police were notified and they started the, the normal procedure for missing adults. By Monday morning, Father Garrigan was officially declared missing from Ronan, Montana. And in some cases, we say we see that they make you wait so long before you report somebody missing, but it doesn't seem like that was the case here. It seems like he was gone. They reported him missing pretty quickly. Well, he's a 58-year-old preacher. Like, that's kind of a big, like, the church is his main thing, and he's not going to miss that unless something something's wrong. He can't get there. And he definitely is not living a high-risk lifestyle, which we see in some cases. That's a really good point. This is someone who is, is, you know, following the, the straight and narrow path. So that same morning, just a little more than 10 minutes from Ronan, on the east shores of Flathead Lake, a woman setting up a roadside stand of fresh produce noticed a lump of something in the same turnoff of Highway 35 as her stand. She walked over to discover a heap of bloody clothing. The clothing seemed neatly and intentionally stacked. It was folded, which is so strange, and included a shirt, windbreaker, and a pair of shoes. A $100 bill was stuffed in his shirt pocket, 
and his wallet containing about $200 was left with his clothes according to a news report. So this kind of shows that whatever happened to him, it wasn't a robbery because they left this money behind. It seems extremely intentional to me that the money was left behind. Definitely. And just so you guys know, in this case, we do have some conflicting details. We thought we'd share what we have. Um, we'll share all the info, but there is some conflicting details about how much money was left and where exactly his wallet was found. But we'll share all the information. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really affect the story so much. Yeah, but. It doesn't affect the story, but we want to make sure that we're letting you know that we do have conflicting details so that we're, we're doing our best. So, um, okay, so lab reports found hair belonging to Father Kerrigan on the clothing, the bloody clothing that was found on the side of the road. And as strange as a stack of bloody clothing may be, the police found something even more puzzling. Not too far away, just off the road, near the clothing and the shoes, the police found a bloody and mangled hanger that they presume may have been involved with the Father Kerrigan accident. Now, what's your thoughts on a mangled and bloody hanger? And we're talking about a clothes hanger, like the metal ones that you get from the dry cleaner. Mel, thoughts? I have very little thoughts on how this could possibly be used in a murder. I mean, that's what we're presuming at this point. I have no idea. That uh, the only thing I can think of is it has to be a ligature, um, something used to strangle or uh, restrict the the breathing. Definitely. But also, it was bloody, and I don't I don't want to think about why a hanger would be bloody. <laughs> no, maybe maybe he could have been beaten before, I, and then it was used yes, as ligature, yes. so he was already bloody. Mm -hmm. Yep. But yeah, so they find a bloody and mangled hanger. About a week later, on Monday, July 30th, 1984, Father Kerrigan's missing white and brown 1976 Chevy Impala was discovered on a hillside lookout over Polson, about three miles from the clothes found on Highway 35. The car was found to have been wiped clean of fingerprints, according to AP reports. So we're going to bring the blood back into it. A lot of blood was found in the interior of the car and trunk, mainly in the front seat, passenger side door, and the passenger side floorboard. In the trunk, police discovered a blood-soaked pillow, a blood-covered shovel, and, quote, this is a quote from AP Report, Kerrigan's wallet stuffed with more than $1,000 cash. Again, that's where we're getting those little discrepancies, but um, uh, that shouldn't affect the story too much. The keys to the car were found in the weeds about 30 yards away. And if we're thinking about yards, um, I refer back to Mel football Mel terms. <laughs> Melanie knows her football. <laughs> yes, my husband coaches football. So a football field is 100 yards. So I would say about a third of the field. Um, so it's probably about the distance you could throw keys, maybe a, a little throw. further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we move on, I want to bring up like this contradiction where we have the car wiped of fingerprints and yet we've got blood everywhere. 
it, it's interesting to me that they would take the time to wipe fingerprints, but leave all of that other evidence just just around. Yeah, that is definitely strange. I wonder if they ran out of time to clean up the blood, or if they weren't worried about their blood being there. They knew it was all Father Kerrigan's. Yeah, yeah you're right. Mm-hmm. Despite all of the evidence found, the case had gone cold. Paul Choma, who is the chief investigator in the case, told AP he was surprised at the lack of candor and the reluctance of many during this investigation, including church officials. The church was reluctant to provide critical information. In fact, he had to dig and find other sources to piece together what information he could. Little Ronan, Montana had not forgotten. Bob Denault, the local bakery owner, said that Father Kerrigan's disappearance was, quote, the prime topic of conversation. The night before his disappearance, Father Kerrigan had walked into Denault's bakery on 4th Avenue Southwest in Ronan and visited with Bob Denault and other customers. Father Kerrigan at that time was wearing red shorts, a white tee, and tennis shoes despite the freezing temperatures. Even though this is July, it was freezing in Montana. I'm going to stick to the desert, you guys. I I can't do those cold, cold temperatures. He was physically fit. He was six feet tall and weighed about 200 pounds. He loved helping out his friends in cowboy work, like branding and working the cattle, and was in great physical health. Bob Denault, the bakery owner, is quoted saying, From his nature, it appeared he couldn't harm anyone. Father Kerrigan was charming, kind, and outgoing in his day-to-day life. That evening, he chatted with people in the bakery and mentioned he loved his evening walks in the brisk air, which I will agree, I love a good evening walk. He also mentioned he would be attending a wedding and a funeral in Plains, Montana, which is about an hour drives away the next day. He wished his new friends a good night and headed towards his home, the rectory, next to the church, which was located just across the street from the bakery. This is the last known appearance of Father John Patrick Kerrigan. The police, in doing their investigation, performed a social autopsy of Father Kerrigan. Um, Do you know what a social autopsy is, Becky? Yeah, it's it's just um, a really deep assessment going through every nook and cranny you know searching for people they worked with people they were friends with people they spent time with locations everything it's just a really good deep dive in our lingo of our victim definitely um father kerrigan was born so this is what they discovered in Mm -hmm. that social autopsy Mm -hmm. father kerrigan was born january 10th 1926 he was born in butte montana and attended saint saint joseph grade school and Central High School. He moved to Seattle to attend St. Edward's Seminary. He was ordained in Butte and began working in the ministry at St. Patrick's Church in 1954. But police noticed a very strange trend in Father Kerrigan's ministry. They began to wonder why he had been at so many parishes through the years. 13 different parishes seemed to be a very high number. He seemed to be moving around a lot, especially in 1965. He served uh, that year in three separate parishes in just that year alone. Are you ready for this rundown, Melanie? I've got him at in Butte, Montana in 1954 to 1955, Hamilton 1955 to 1956, Walkerville in 1959, 
1962, from 1962 to 1964, <sighs> Back to Butte, 1964 to 1965, Browning, 1965, Bozeman, 1965 to 1977-1984, and finally Ronan in 1984. Now you need to get a drink, catch your breath. That's a long list. Yeah, that's a lot of moving around, especially in just in one state. Those are not far moves, just little jumps around Montana. During the investigation, a little dirty secret came out that uh, about Father Kerrigan's past. The Congregation of the Servants of the Paracolite was located in Jemez Springs, New Mexico. It was founded in 1947 by Father Gerald Fitzgerald. It's located on 200 acres of beautiful landscape and was founded to help priests suffering from alcohol and substance abuse. Later, it became a location to send wayward priests with sexual sins and pedophilia. Um, I have a quote from a Pennsylvania grand jury, and it says, Put plainly, these institutions, including congregations of the servants of the paracolite, laundered accused priests, provided plausible deniability to the bishops, and permitted hundreds of known offenders to return. So at this time, we're going to take a little break, and we will be right Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. And we're back. Okay, so we just learned about the Paracolite. And for something that started with such a wonderful purpose, you know, because these priests are human, um, they're going to suffer from from normal um, abuses, burnout that we all do. Uh, looks like it was turned into something quite differently than the intention, a place to send wayward priests with sexual sins and pedophilia. I read the grand jury report um, on this and it was, it was beyond upsetting. Um, the AP article from 2019 published a letter from the founder, Father Gerald Fitzgerald, that Melanie mentioned earlier, and about his anger and frustrations um, and concerns of the priests re-entering their duties in the church after staying at his um, paraclete. In a 1957 letter, he said, quote, from our long experience with characters of this type and without passing judgment on the individual, most of these men would be clinically classified as schizophrenic. There Repentance and amendment is superficial and, if not formally, at least subconsciously, is motivated by a desire to be again in a position where they can continue their wanted activity. A new diocese means only green pastures. That 
honestly, that quote just makes me sick to my stomach. I'm glad I didn't read the AP report because you told me a little bit about it and it just sounds awful. So sad. The grand jury report was, was very hard to read. I, my heart goes out to father Fitzgerald because he really did seem to have a really good intention behind it. Um, obviously, you know, in his statement, he quotes that these men would be schizophrenic. Obviously we know the science have moved forward. That is out of date, but you can tell that, um, he's not happy with what, what his dream has come, come, come to, come to be. So during the police investigation, they discovered that Father John Patrick Kerrigan had spent time at this facility. So we are positive he did spend time there. Okay. A similar case was brought to the investigator's attention that happened just two years before Father Kerrigan's disappearance. So Melanie, would you tell us about... Reverend Anderson. Yes. On June 13th, 1982, Reverend James Otis Anderson, who was 54, he was an Episcopal priest in Townsend, Montana, and he was a friend of Father Kerrigan. He was last seen driving east on Highway 12 towards White Sulphur Springs. He, too, failed to show up for his church services. His his home was left normal. No signs of a struggle or anything out of order. Um, it was. It wasn't like he was leaving for a long time. Nothing was pulled out, suitcases, anything like that. The authorities actually found his sermon was left laid out, ready to be shared from his pulpit on Sunday morning. His toothbrush and razor were left in the bathroom. Yet, strangely, there were some curious items missing and never recovered. Those included an address book, a treasured Afghan, and his pistol. Reverend Anderson's bank accounts, credit cards, and social security number were never used again. He did have some conflicts in his personal life. The Reverend had just filed for divorce a few months earlier, and he and his wife were fighting over custody of their children. He was also having some trouble at his job. There are some reports stating that he may have been facing getting fired from the church. We don't know why. That's not public, but there are some some questions around where his job status was going to be. Four months later, in October of 1982, his silver 1975 VW was found abandoned in a heavily wooded remote area of White's Gulch in the Big Belt Mountains, just northwest of Townsend. The little car looked like it had tried to be hidden. Investigators said whoever left the car was definitely familiar with the area. It was not visible from the road, trail, or aircraft. So I thought this was interesting. His wife said she doesn't believe he could have driven himself to this location. She said he was not a good driver and not familiar with the area. How many wives say that about their husbands, though? (laughs) That's a good point. But, I mean, if you think about a VW bug, they've got a really low clearance. And this was this was off the beaten path. I mean, they said what well, could not be seen from the road, could not be seen from the air. Whoever hid this vehicle did a really good job. So yeah, his wife said he wasn't familiar with the area. She also shared that she doesn't believe that he would ever leave on his own accord. She said he adored his children and would never leave or hurt them in any way. She also mentioned mentioned that she thought he was acting strange. He was acting distant and just kind of 
peculiar before his disappearance. It is interesting that she is saying these things as they're going through a divorce and fighting for custody. But for her, so for her in that position to say he would not leave his kids, um, it feels like that's probably a pretty genuine statement. I would agree with that. An area search around his car found Anderson's prayer book, Old Testament Bible, a cap, eyeglasses, and a clerical collar about a half a mile from the VW. These items were found on a ridge overlooking Townsend, Montana. Now, I do have another interesting little note on this story. Six months before his disappearance, Anderson dropped his wife from his life insurance and made the beneficiary his church, St. John's Episcopal Church. So the church collected his insurance money. His body has never been found and his case is still unsolved. All right, Melanie, let's go to another break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Welcome back from the break. So we had talked about Father Kerrigan's disappearance, and now we've touched a little bit on Father Anderson's. And both of those are in Montana. Yes. Mm -hmm. So now as the police are looking into this, they uh, get pointed in the direction of New Mexico, so pretty far south. And a few months before Reverend Anderson's disappearance, there was another similar case down in Santa Fe. On August 7, 1982, Father Ronaldo Rivera received a phone call at the rectory of St. Francis Cathedral in Santa Fe, New Mexico. A man who said his name was Michael Carmelo called begging for the last rites or anointing of the sick of a loved one. And last rites, if you don't know what they are, is uh, also called the commendation of the dying, which is last prayers and ministrations given. Um, It's very important in the Catholic faith. It has to be performed before the person passes away. So usually it's right before, right before they pass away. The caller claimed he was at a rest stop near Waldo, New Mexico. Father Rivera said he couldn't leave right at that minute, but to please call back in about 15 minutes. The caller did, and Father Rivera let the abbot know his plans to go out and perform the last rites for this man in need. He left at approximately 8.45, and the rest stop was just 20 miles away. He never returned. The next day, which was August 8, 1982, Father Rivera was reported missing. There were hundreds of volunteers that searched the area of the rest stop and around the Santa Fe area. Three days later, his body was found in a remote field just three miles from the rest stop. He had been shot several times and there was evidence that he had been restrained. Police believe Father Rivera was killed at a separate location from the field where his body was found. I'm assuming because of blood loss, would you think that, Mel? Yeah, probably there wasn't as much blood as where where his body was, so they assumed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and his body was left, you know, just right out in plain sight. 
And next to the bottle, but the body, guess what they found? What did they find? They found a mangled wire hanger. Oh, that hanger is Sound so creepy. Mm-hmm. During the investigation, police discovered that the payphone at the rest stop back in Waldo was out of service on the night of the phone calls. So the phone call Father Rivera received had to have been placed from somewhere else. So the caller lied about where they were calling from. That is creepy right there. Yes. His car, a 1974 Chevy Malibu, was found abandoned about 110 miles away at a rest stop in Grants, New Mexico. So this is, I think we're looking at Father Rivera being lured, don't you think? Yeah, it seems like he was lured there. Someone was prepared to to hurt him, to do something to him. Ambushed, pretty much. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, the killers probably returned to that rest stop after he had been murdered and stole the Malibu and drove it away and placed drove it somewhere distance. else. Yeah. yeah. So Michael Carmelo, remember, is the man who claimed to need the last rites for his loved one. Um, So Michael Carmelo was found, but he was cleared of any crime. So obviously he was, they were using a fake name. Father Rivera's last rites kit has never been recovered. And many officials, many officials believe that Kerrigan and Rivera's murders are connected. There are a lot of parallels between the two um, crimes. So, of course, we've got our wire coat hangers that were found at both crime scenes. They were both members of the Order of the Franciscans, which is, I read about it a little bit, which is like an organization um, of, of Catholics, men and women who just want to believe and have and have that faith society in their life mm-hmm. um both cars were driven away from the crime scenes and wiped clean of even of, of any fingerprints they were very close in age to each other kerrigan was 58 at the time and rivera was 57 and then they both died in the summer which i believe was june and july for both of them so santa fe deputy police chief gilbert ulibari told the Santa Fe New Mexican he had a, quote, gut feeling the disappearance of the Montana priest and the killing of Father Rivera were tied in some way. He wasn't sure perhaps it was a serial killer, maybe not, but he was convinced that these were connected in some way. And I'm, I'm a believer in that gut feeling. So um, while the, the uh, Santa Fe De- Deputy of Police believes that, we've got the New Mexico State Police Detective Eric Lucero. He stated plainly in 1994 that there is, quote, no connection whatsoever. But Yulabari did counter with a great point in, uh, when he said, whoever killed Kerrigan left his clothes in a neat pile right by the road. If he didn't want people to know that Kerrigan had been killed, why would he leave the clothes there? And he's got an extremely valid point. Yes, definitely. Yeah. In the summer of 1985, Lake County's new sheriff, Joe Geldrich, reported progress in solving Father Kerrigan's disappearance and assumed murder. He would not name a suspect directly, but stated the man was, quote, not in Montana. And he was waiting for the uh, right accumulation of evidence before taking action. He noted that, quote, the chances of solving the case looks very good. Since this mention in 1985, there has been no further reports. We've heard nothing since 1985. That is a long time to go hearing nothing. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so remember Reverend Anderson, the Episcopal priest from Townsend who disappeared two years before Father Kerrigan? Yes, I do remember. So police could not connect those two disappearances either. In April of 2015, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena settled a large civil lawsuit alleging that a number of priests had been sexual abusers in their parishes. The lawsuit charged that church leaders reassigned those priests to new parishes, giving them no punishment but a reproach to quit molesting. So is, is that a hand slap? What is that? I mean, it's don't do it again and here's a new group of people. Maybe you're out of time out. Oh my gosh. The church agreed to a financial settlement and shared the identities of 80 former employees. The majority of them were priests or nuns who, uh, quote, who had allegedly sexually abused children in Western Montana. Um, Kerrigan was named as one of these abusers. So he is directly named. Yes. Father John Patrick Kerrigan's disappearance is officially still active and open. No individuals, descendants, or loved ones have publicly demanded any justice. This is an interesting and such a sad story. I mean, what are your thoughts? What do you think happened? You know, usually when we tell uh, a a true crime story, we have an aggressor and we have a victim. And here our our victims are nameless children who who were taken advantage from someone that they love. Definitely. I feel like a couple of them are at least tied together with the coat hanger. That just, to me, is such a a very distinct detail. And it seems like they would be connected and possibly trying to give some vigilante justice for the children. It seems to me, maybe. It could be some some anti-Catholic vengeance, some vigilante justice, like you said. We want to clearly state we... I have Catholic friends and they are wonderful people. I've worked a lot with the Catholic Church when I worked for a recovery program and it's an amazing organization. Um, So we want to make sure that's clear to our Catholic friends out there that we know that just like any other group of people or organization, 99.9% of people are really good people. Um, But I'm going to disagree with you, Mel. I, I know you think I'm crazy because of the metal hanger. I don't think that they they are linked in any way. You just think it was a random coincidence, which it definitely could be. I feel like back then metal hangers were more common. We don't That's see a them. Really good point. We don't mm-hmm. see them very often anymore, so it could definitely be a coincidence, but we'd love to know what all of your yeah. thoughts are. Um, we will share some pictures on our social medias and look for those there. Um yeah, we'd love to hear what you have to what you think. Mel, give us those, those social medias again, would you? Of course. So our Instagram is at Rocky Mountain Red-handed. Our Facebook is Rocky Mountain Red-handed and our Twitter is RMRH podcast. Also, we're always looking for new case ideas that you guys would like to hear about. We want to cover cases that you find interesting. So if you have any, you can send those to our email, which is RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. And again, those are cases in the Rocky Mountain region, um, Southern Canada, Montana, Colorado, Idaho, um, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico. Who else am I missing? 
you put me on the spot here. I can't think of all of them off the top of my head. But so. any of the Rocky Mountain states, you guys have cases. We'd love to get those ideas and look into those cases. Yeah. So thanks out there for your for all the support, neighbors. And until next time, keep your hands clean. Bye.